This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran, giving you eternal answers to challenging questions and providing reasons for faith in Christ. We are continuing our series on Judaism with Pat Zucaran and Pat's special guest. Pat? Yes, Kevin, we have with us a special guest. In fact, he's actually a classmate of mine from Dallas Theological Seminary. We graduated right about the same time there. Uh, this is Steve Gurr. Steve Gurr has a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He served as an associate pastor after graduating and now is a leader of a great ministry, a great evangelistic outreach to Jewish people called Sojourner Ministries. We talked about witnessing to the Jews last week. Now, this week, we want to talk about messianic prophecies that indeed Jesus does fulfill the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Let's start with one of the most popular ones, Isaiah 53. Does this indeed point to Jesus Christ? Well, there's nothing in Isaiah 53 that has the label Jesus Christ or even the Messiah. But when we talk about this individual that we're introduced to uh, throughout Isaiah, this servant of the Lord, okay, this Evid uh, Yahweh, uh, if you want to use that term uh, in Hebrew. But the servant of the Lord is the individual who's being discussed here in uh, Isaiah 53, beginning at the end of 52. And this individual who is nameless, okay, just has that title, servant of the Lord, accomplishes a great deal. One of the things he accomplishes is to bear the iniquities of his people, of Israel, upon him. And it has been, uh, it has been a traditional view of the Jewish people from the time of Isaiah Okay, through the rabbinic writings, all the way up to about the year 1000, okay, about the turn of that first millennia AD, it was the traditional view of all Jewish people that this individual was the Messiah. It referred to the Messiah. Now, they didn't believe that it was Jesus. Of course, the remnant did. A remnant of Jewish people believed that that applied to Jesus. But nonetheless, it was a traditional view that Isaiah 53 spoke about a personal Messiah, a suffering one. There is such a strong stream in Messianic or rabbinic thought of this suffering Messiah uh, that it's only really until the coming of a great rabbi called Rashi at the turn of the millennia who, in reaction, it seems, in reaction to the powerful evangelistic efforts of the Jewish community vis-a-vis Isaiah 53 and saying, who fulfills this but Jesus, that the interpretation changed, the mainstream Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53 changed to one of applying to the nation of Israel, that the nation is suffering on behalf of themselves. Of course, if you read the passage, whether you read it in Hebrew or whether you read a good English translation, and it's hard, frankly, to butcher this translation, no matter how it comes out in English, it's pretty good. I've seen many translations, and they're all pretty accurate as uh, because the Hebrew is, is very, very clear that this individual is suffering on behalf of the people. The Jewish people cannot suffer on behalf of themselves in that passage. So whether it, belongs, whether it applies to Jesus or not is a matter of individual choice. Show us some verses from that passage that make it clear that we're not talking about the nation of Israel here. We are indeed talking about an individual here, uh, the Messiah. Absolutely. Now, um, for example, when we see in 52 verse 13, 
we see my servant, that is, again, the servant of the Lord, as an individual who will be raised up and highly exalted, and his appearance is disfigured. He is marred. Uh, it's very, very clear in the description at the end of chapter 52 that we're not talking about some poetic personification of the nation of Israel. This is somebody who is going to be beaten up, who is going to be uh, disfigured and his uh, appearance distorted. Now, if we look at the beginning of 53... The pronouns, and pronouns are very, very important in the Bible uh, and interpreting. It's he, he, he. He had no beauty. He grew up. He was despised. Like one, now this is very important in verse 3 of 53, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The we, who is the we? If He is the nation of Israel, then again, who is the we? We and he cannot refer to the same individual. Now, the Lord has laid on him, this is verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is us all if him is Israel? Him must be an individual, a Messiah, a messianic figure. Now, Whether you believe that this refers to Jesus, that he is the suffering individual, that's a decision that each one of us must make. He really fits the bill, doesn't he? He really does fit the bill. You look and see, well, okay, in human history thus far, is there any individual in the nation of Israel, obviously has to be someone from the nation of Israel, is there anyone who fits this bill? Well, there's plenty of suffering among the Jewish people. There are plenty of people who have suffered. But then when you look at the concept of the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all, of us all, led like a lamb to the slaughter, did not open his mouth, but then later on in the passage toward the end, he will see the light of life. Someone who has suffered, suffered to death, his grave made with the wicked, but then will see the light of life and will prosper Mm. to me. It's very clear there was only one individual. I wanted to bring something out really quick. There's something very convincing to me in Isaiah 53 that this is not talking about Israel. Everything you said is so amazing. But verse 11, uh, whoever this suffering servant is, he is righteous. Yet Isaiah says that Israel is not righteous and that I myself am not righteous. Isaiah says that he is not righteous. And so whoever this servant is, is is righteous. That, that, that's kind of convincing to me. That this is talking about somebody. And it is powerful. Yeah. The case in Isaiah 53 really begins to build with each verse. As you read from the end of 52 to the conclusion of 53 in verse 12, it becomes clearer and clearer the identity of this messianic deliverer, this suffering servant, must be Jesus the Messiah. That's a great passage, Steve. Now, What are some other great messianic prophecies that we can use when we're sharing with uh, Jewish people? Well, I think Deuteronomy chapter 18 is very, very important. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, and this is really um, an overlooked passage, and yet it is quoted several times in John and in Acts in reference to Jesus. It's those passages where um, 
Jesus is identified as the prophet. You say, well, who is he? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? Uh, and then, of course, Peter uses this passage in Acts chapter 3. So I love to use the passages that the New Testament use, specifically those powerful messianic prophecies, like Isaiah 53, that's used in Acts chapter 8 with the, um, with the Ethiopian. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Peter points out that a prophet like unto Moses, was to arise from among the Jewish people. Now, the interesting thing about this prophet like unto Moses is that Moses says in, uh, in uh, verse 19 that of chapter 18, if you don't follow this guy who's going to be a prophet very similar to me, you will be cut off from your people. Um, there will be the strictest and severest penalty for the ones who do not listen and hearken unto him. Now, from the time of Moses to the time of the first century, the Jewish people, they had examined every prophet. And let's face it, there's no shortage of prophets in ancient Israel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, uh, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, etc. But no prophet was like unto Moses. And with each century, with each generation that passed, without, without, a, profo- without a prophetic voice like unto Moses, the expectation grew ever greater until we see Jesus, you know, riding his donkey. And as Zechariah tells us that he will ride from the Mount of Olives and enter into the East Gate. That's another tremendous passage in uh, Zechariah 9, uh, that he will uh, ride in, uh, lowly riding a donkey. And the crowd, what happens when the crowd sees him enter the uh, the temple at Passover, four days before the Passover begins, on the very day when the lambs are to be, sacri- oh, are, are to be selected for sacrifice four days from then, the crowd goes wild, as they say, and they cry out, Baruch haba b'shem anai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they cry out, Hoshiana, uh, Hosanna, save us. Um, the Jewish people very, very clearly are expecting a second Moses to come, uh, and what better time for that second Moses to come than at Passover time. And the very fact that the Jewish people have not hearkened unto this prophet like unto Moses who came unto them creates a severe penalty for them, as was promised by Moses himself at the very beginning of the chosen people's history. And you know that Jesus performed many of the signs and wonders uh, through the historical record of the Gospels that were written by first century eyewitnesses. Isn't that right, Steve? Absolutely. It is Jesus' miracles that verify his identity as the one like unto Moses. Fantastic. Uh, what's another passage? Well, I like to go. Uh, I like to go back to Isaiah. Isaiah is is chock full of them, and uh, Isaiah nine is fantastic, uh, where we have this coming King, this wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The attributes addressed to this coming king, this child who would be born. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, uh, the government will be upon his shoulder. This coming king's attributes go far beyond. Any human being, there must be reference to a God-man in Isaiah chapter 9. Give us a brief explanation of that passage there. 
Sure. Isaiah chapter 9, which is so familiar uh, to us in uh, at Christmas time especially, uh, came at the midst of a troubling time for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel, when they needed uh, uh, hope. And Isaiah gives them this tremendous promise that there is a coming king who will be more than man. He'll be more than Superman. He will in some way be a God-man. He will be called the father of eternity. This His counsel will be supernatural in effect, and the government will rest securely and eternally upon his shoulders. The question we often get is this. If the Jews had these messianic prophecies staring them in the face, how they miss it? How they miss Jesus? How do you explain that? Well, there's actually a theological answer that Paul gives in Romans 11. Uh, And this is uh, one of those passages that really should be so familiar to every believer, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, because it really truly explains the faithfulness of God, because it it comes to a larger uh, point. Well, if God is faithful to his chosen people and the promises that he made to the Jewish people, how could he have allowed the Jewish people, the nation of Israel en masse, with the exception of the remnant, to have missed the biggest revelation of all, his Messiah? How is that possible? And uh, Paul talks about the fact that, first of all, the Jewish people did not miss the Messiah. They did not miss these prophecies. A remnant believed, and God has always worked through a remnant. Israel as a whole, the entire 100% of the Jewish people, had never been completely faithful or people of faith in God. It was only a minority. Now, that minority waxed and waned as the centuries went by in uh, certain circumstances, political, sociological, cultural circumstances, so it was larger or smaller. But the Jewish people uh, had always been faithful, at least a remnant had, and so too in this day. He uses the the, uh, example of Elijah when he says, I'm the only guy faithful, I'm the only Jew left, and God says, no, 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 you're not the only one. I have reserved for myself a remnant. To this age, there is a remnant. Right. Now, Steve, um, one of the questions we often get is the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, is the, are, is the Trinity um, exemplified anywhere in the Old Testament, or is it suddenly introduced in the New Testament, and that's what throws all the confusion uh, for the Jewish people? Well, the concept of the Trinity, the... Triunity of God uh, is a is a difficult concept for most people to to grasp. Even those like us who have spent countless years and dollars at seminary uh, trying to figure it all out. But bottom line, from the very very beginning of the Scripture, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six, the most important. Uh, uh, clarion cry in Judaism is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jewish people take this as a, as a call that God is one, monotheism, etc. But even the word Echad in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as early as Torah, is a, a compound unity. Um, those who know Hebrew know that if he wanted to say an indivisible unity, he would have used the word Yechad, okay? Which is what that means. Echad means a compound unity, much like one cluster of grapes or the United States, one country, many states. Well, Echad, God is one. There is a multiplicity within that oneness, within the unity. Now, the New Testament explicitly tells us that there are three within that 
But we even see tidbits of that in uh, something like Isaiah uh, 48, where we talk about the servant of the Lord and the servant of the Lord who has been sent by God with his spirit. We have in Isaiah right there explicitly three individuals, the Messiah, God the Father, or God, and God's Spirit. So there are hints of the Trinity uh, that one can read. It's, it's been said that the, uh, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Right, the new to the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, uh, etc. And it's really true. The truth of the New Testament, Jesus walking, talking, and uh, the teaching of Jesus and of the apostles reveals more truth that we were only beginning to see to germinate in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's why it's one book. You wouldn't expect to see the whole mystery unveiled at the beginning of the mystery novel. In the first third of the mystery novel, you can't find out who the murderer is. You can't find out the big slam-bam conclusion. You have to wait and see toward the end of the book how it all ties together. And that's what the New Testament does for us with the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. How about in that Genesis 1 passage where it talks about the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep, and then there's the plural in the English, let us make yeah, man Yeah, that's, a, that's a very important point, that even in, in uh, as early as Genesis, you have uh, the term for God is the plural term Elohim, and you have plural uh, pronouns, let us. Now, traditionally, Jewish people have described God as speaking with his uh, the angelic host, uh, who were the co-creators, but I don't think that's clear in the scripture. You have to read that into it. I think it's much simpler, much more basic to see a plurality in the Godhead recognized even as early as Genesis. Remember, Deuteronomy was written by the same guy who wrote Genesis, Moses. He understood that God was a plurality within that unity. So it can't be, a, it can't be explained away by the plurality of, uh, of royalty, the royal we. Right. Mm-hmm. This is God. We see the Trinity in secret, in part, concealed, even as early as Genesis. Now, there are some skeptics who say, you know, when Jesus was upon the earth, he was kind of subtle about being the divine son of God and about being the Messiah. Why wasn't he just more obvious running around saying, I am the Messiah, I am God incarnate. Here I am. Well, I'll tell you, anybody who, who makes that statement with a straight face has obviously not read the New Testament. One cannot get more than seven chapters, for example, into the Gospel of John before Jesus at the pilgrimage festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, okay, Sukkot, where there were tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Jewish people gathered together in the temple. Jesus stands up and says, I am the source of the Ruach HaKodesh. He says in front of everybody, right there in front of high, uh, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the rabbis, the people. He says, I am the source of the Holy Spirit. If you want living water, uh, then you must, the Chaim Mayim in Hebrew, you must come to me. If he's not claiming to be the Messiah there in front of everybody, right there in, in John chapter 7, I don't know what he's claiming. Uh, uh, John chapter 10, three chapters later. 
He says, I told you who I was. He told him at Sukkot just a few months earlier at Tabernacles. He tells him again at Hanukkah in John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. He gets much more explicit. He says, I am equal to to God. I am incarnate deity. Furthermore, I'm in charge of who gets eternal life and who doesn't. And furthermore, if you don't like them apples, I'm also in charge of who is secure in their eternal life. My followers will all receive secure eternal life. He says that on a Jewish holiday. Jesus saves his big revelations for the the big public Jewish holidays when there's a big crowd. It's really hard to make the case that Jesus spent more than just a, a few months at the beginning of his ministry concealing his messianic identity, what we call the messianic secret. He spent the large part of that, at least that last year, if not the second half of his ministry, proclaiming, I am the Messiah, like it or lump it. The guy had a lot of moxie, got a lot of guts, and nobody can stand and say Jesus concealed his identity, nor that he ever claimed to be God, because he did both. Right, even in his titles that he used of himself, right, son of man, uh, son of David, those are messianic claims, and also claiming to be divine. Yeah, the the Bar Enosh, the son of man that comes from Daniel, is a well-known messianic title. It is the one who is coming in the clouds of heaven, who is seen with the Ancient of Days with God. This is this is not just the son of man title. It's not just, well, he was born of a virgin and son of God and son of man. Not so. This is a divine title that he is taking upon himself. He's saying, I am a supernatural man. I am deity. I am equal with God. What do you think of that? Right. So many people, you know, critics say, Jesus didn't claim to be God. He claimed to be the son of God. Didn't Jesus didn't claim to be deity. He claimed to be the son of God. How do we deal with an objection like that? It's just, it's you turn to the scriptures. You show them John chapter 10, uh, starting from verse 22 all the way to, uh, I believe, 31 or 32, where he says, I and the Father are one. It is a very clear uh, equation. And you say, well, you know, Steve, well, maybe you're you know, taking it out of context, and uh, that's not what his, uh, his audience would have understood. No, the Jewish people listening to him in the temple, they look around for stones to go and stone him because he, being a man, made himself out to be God. Of course, they got it wrong because that's not what the New Testament teaches. It is God who has become a man, not a man who has become God. But they certainly got the overall concept that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. He was in some way the incarnation of God himself in flesh, walking in their very midst. Well, Steve, I guess in the last uh, minute that we have here, if there are any out there who are of uh, Jewish heritage, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Steve, what would you like to say to them? What I would like to say is that Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus loves you. Don't believe what the rabbis have told you, that you are okay as a Jew, that God will accept you just as you are. The Bible never teaches that, neither New Testament nor Old Testament. It is necessary to have a relationship with God, to have your sins atoned for. There is no temple. There is no sacrifice. There is one provision for you, and that is the Messiah. He is not an option. He is not a way to God. He is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and your very life. May that passion that we hear in Steve's voice be a part of the passion that's all of us to reach not only Jewish people, but all those who don't know Jesus Christ with the message of the gospel. 
for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share it with your family, your friends, and, of course, your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.